This is Susanna Hills Podcast. We hope this message becomes a revelation in your heart and will encourage you to live a Christ-centered life. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Here's today's message. Wonderful friends. So we are finishing our um, Relentless Love series, which is focused on the book of Hosea. Um, I know we, we haven't even scratched the surface. We looked at probably the first three chapters uh, looking at this, this journey of Hosea actually expressing, not just speaking this prophecy, but actually living it. He became the very embodiment of God's love for his people, Israel. A wayward people, a people that were, were running the opposite direction, not wanting to experience and enjoy his love, but God kept coming back, just like he sent Hosea back to take Goma back. I mean, she, she literally became you know, an adulteress. She had children with three different men. Uh, and then Hosea gives them each a name and actually adopts them as his own, um, that she eventually becomes a slave. Uh, and as we saw on Friday, just a parallel of, of just as, as Hosea was willing to pay the full price to redeem Gomer, Jesus becomes the price and he pays it completely that you and I would be able to experience uh, not only freedom from our sins, but actually that we would become the bride of Christ. We would be united with him. And today as we celebrate this Resurrection Sunday, uh, I'm trusting that as we look at yet another passage in the book of Isaiah, how this points again to Christ and how you and I can actually come to experience God's relentless love in increasing measure. So if we look at our text today, um, it's going to be found in in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 to 3. Now many of you, would, and I certainly thought about this as I was reading the book of Isaiah. I mean, it's a minor prophet. It's... It feels like um, there's so much happening in it, like where is the cross, where is Christ actually seen? And as we've been seeing, we can see so many parallels uh, in it. But in this chapter, it speaks, it says the following, reading from verse 1 to 3, it says, Come and let us return to the Lord, for He has torn, but He will heal us. He He has stricken, but He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of God. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter rain and the former rain on the earth. Friends, this is um, just such a beautiful picture. If we look at Isaiah speaking to the people of Israel, you and I need to understand um, that they have been obviously a a wayward people, and he's praying for them. He's earnestly calling them and saying to them, come and return to the, the Lord. Come back to your husband. Come back to the one that loves you. Turn from your, your wickedness, but now be made whole by him. It's amazing to see that we have this very real prophecy of Jesus' death happening, him being in the tomb for two days. But on the third day, he would rise. This very same picture, we see that in verse 2. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. Now, he's speaking about us, as in, for the people of Israel, they would experience a a, a kind of death, but God would bring them to life again in the same way he was then prophesying. And I don't think Isaiah actually really knew this. Some commentators uh, would say, you know, in the context, perhaps he wasn't necessarily thinking that it was a messianic uh, prophecy. In other words, speaking about Jesus' coming, but actually he was speaking about it. And the early church, in many ways, looked to this particular passage as a confirmation, not only of the death and 
uh, resurrection of Jesus, but also the life he would come to fulfill. And it's so encouraging for me to see how this Old Testament passage, I don't know if you read the Old Testament with that lens. You know, you can see the gospel on every page of the Old Testament. God's word is so powerful. It's amazing for me to see that when we read it, you could read in the same passage over and over and over. This is the only book on the planet that we don't just read, but it gets to read us. Do you realize that? God speaks to us through his word, and that's why I can read the same passage over and over and find things. I'm like, wait a minute, I've never seen this before. Once again, I behold the glory of God. I fall face down, my appropriate response, saying, Lord, you are holy, and I have no, I, I, didn't, I didn't realize. And so we see how this ties in with the resurrection province of Jesus. And, and Paul writes, obviously, and speaks about the fact that Jesus came to deliver us from our offenses, just like he, he delivered, God promised that he would deliver the people of Israel uh, with Hosea from their offenses, from the sin that they had done. But he would also raise us up for our justification. In other words, he would look at us as if we have never sinned before. Can you think about this? Hosea taking a goma back and he treats her like she has never sinned before. Now, some of you are, are, have experiences in your life. You've had some experiences with relationships. People have left you, let you down. Maybe a, a loved one or a spouse has turned their back on you. And you've had to exercise and walk out and work out this forgiveness. And it's been really difficult. And if you had to put yourself in that situation, you realize oh, that's, that's a hard price to pay. To pay, I don't know if I would be able to do that, but God looks at you and I, and he pays it gladly. But today I'm going to be speaking to us about the fact that God wants you and I to live a resurrection life. If you and I can just come to understand this, and I'm hoping that as I open the scripture for us, we'll be able to see just the significance of this. As, as, as believers, we are not just people that are like, great, Jesus died for my sins, I've, I'm cleansed. But actually there is a life that you and I can live. And there's an aspect of God that we can experience. And so we're going to be looking um, at, a, at various passages. But this one just is what actually what Baptist um, quoted when we started our baptisms. He didn't know I was going to share this. But this is what it says. Romans chapter 6 verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. You and I, because of what Jesus has done, can have a resurrection life. That is a promise that God has given us that you, can, you and I can experience. And so just as we look at this particular passage in Hosea, it actually ties into a passage that we find in the New Testament that we're going to be looking at today in a bit more detail. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now many of us have read this letter from Paul. You know, chapter 13 we love, it's the, it's the love passage. But before that, uh, chapter 12 is all about the gifts and how that works out, so it's the gifts of the, of the body, um, the, the love passage, chapter 14, um, speaks about how do we express that, but then in terms of our, our motivation, what is our motivation for this love, based on, on that we walk out God's gifts, we build up the body together, but then in chapter 15, he addresses this very real issue that the Corinthian church was facing, and for you and I today as modern day church, I think we face the same issue. The Corinthian church were looking at the prophecies of Isaiah, and they were looking at the prophecies of the Old Testament, and they were looking around and they were saying, is this resurrection thing really that important? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Our modern day listeners, I think, are asking the same question. 
I mean, any apologetics person that speaks about it, if you've looked at the case for Christ, all of those things, what is the single one most thing that everybody focuses on? Is the resurrection. Because if the resurrection didn't happen, then Christianity doesn't happen. There were so many messianic figures that rose up in the time of Israel over the years, so many times saying one's, one person claiming to be Christ, claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be the one that would redeem people, people would follow them, the leader would be killed, and then that would be the end of the movement. That's why when the, when the Sanhedrin got together, and they were a little bit afraid and, and worried about the New Testament church happening, Gamaliel got up and he said to them, listen friends, we've before, remember, there was this other guy. He also rose, and then when he died, so let's just see. If it's of God, nothing can stop this. And it's because of the resurrection of Christ today that you and I can experience a life that is like no other. I'm trusting that as we will be able to experience that. So um, the resurrection of Christ brings about a changed life. You and I can experience that in increasing measure. Now, as Paul writes, he he realizes that the people of Corinth were questioning the resurrection, and now he writes to them trying to convince them. Not really convince them, but more just giving them some points like, hello, guys, the evidence speaks for itself. And I believe that as we look at it today, I believe God's going to help us maybe change our minds, but also help us to be able to share that with others. And so our first passage, if you look at I'm just going to go through, you know, it's a very long um, chapter. We're going to go through little tidbits of it, but the first verse we're going to look at is, is uh, verse 14, and is in Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. If Jesus wasn't risen from the dead, what's the point of this? What's the point of baptisms? What's the point of any of the things that we do if Jesus wasn't risen? And so he's going to be speaking into the fact that the witness we have, if it was false, then why are we preaching? And so he's going to try and address the argument that the people of Corinth had, saying, well, if the resurrection really, did it really happen? Was it just like someone's, like, they had an hallucination? Some guys got together to conspire. And so he's going to talk, talk to us about the argument in our mind, speaking to what logically would make sense. The second one is in verse 17. It says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. This is a very powerful one. I'm trusting that you and I will be able to experience this. But this, is, this speaks to the, the argument in our conscience. How would you and I be, truly be set free from our sin if Christ didn't die and rise from the dead? And so we're going to look at that. And then this, the, the third one is the looking at our hearts. And that's going to be found in verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts of Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us drink eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we'll die. What he's basically going to say, we're going to look at this, is that if Jesus wasn't risen from the dead, then everything we do, all of our activity, all of our preaching, all of our lives, all of what Christ has called us to live is in vain. It is for nothing. We might as well be like the fool who says, let's eat and drink, be merry, and because tomorrow we'll die, nothing will come of it. So let's have a look at this first argument, the argument around our mind. And we're going to look at this, uh, verse 3 to 9, it says, For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received. This, what did Paul receive? That Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, 
most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that was the, the early leader of the Jerusalem church, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to, also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul gives a historic account. He says to you, I know you, you are having some of these doubts, but let me tell you, let me give you the facts. The facts is that many, many people saw the risen Christ. Many, many people came to experience and actually testified of what they saw and what they, what they experienced for themselves. So you and I can put to rest something of our question um, that says, does it really make logical sense? I'm going to continue. I mean, what he, what he also says is that, that this confirms not only what people saw, but actually what was spoken of as the Scripture revealed. And the two passages that, that Paul would have referenced at this point what would have been Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2, like we've just read, as well as Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. And so he continues in verse 6, he says, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So Paul is saying, okay, guys, don't just take my word for it. Don't just believe me because I told you that he's risen. He's actually saying, you can go and ask some. There's 500 people that saw him all at the same time. They were in the room together. And you can go and ask them. They can corroborate my story. I mean, how amazing is that, that God would even do that? I mean, what's amazing for me, I heard this week, the reason why uh, the tomb needed to be rolled away and the stone was there, Mary, you know, the scripture that we were just reading, the reason why that had to happen, I mean, Jesus was risen, resurrected body. You could go through walls. He didn't need to open the tomb. Why did he have to, why was the tomb open? The, the stone was rolled away so that, Mary and Martha could come in, they could not just have faith that he's risen, but they could actually verify, they could see for themselves, hey guys, the tomb is empty. And so when our faith is not just something that's an airy-fairy, pie-in-the-sky thing that we, somebody came up with, but there is verifiable facts here. You see, Paul is writing about 16 to 18 years after uh, this event, after Jesus was resurrected. And he is not just testifying of the fact that his life was changed, but he's saying, guys, I've got these other witnesses. Their lives have been transformed. They've been willing to testify wherever they go about the risen Christ. That is the resurrection life for us. We don't just receive this, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven, but actually we begin to testify about what Jesus has done. There's three elements which speak to the reality and the power of the resurrection. The first one is the empty tomb. The second one is the eyewitnesses. And the third one is changed lives. So if you wanted to log logically make sense or maybe even share this with somebody, you could say to them, well, first of all, the evidence I have is that there is an empty tomb. It's proof. Secondly, we have eyewitnesses. They wouldn't lie. And thirdly, my life was changed. And so-and-so's life was changed. And this person's life was changed because Jesus was risen from the dead. N.T. Wright, he's a, a well-known New Testament scholar, he said the following, only an empty tomb with no sightings of the resurrected Christ. If you only had an empty tomb with no sightings of the resurrected Christ, people would have believed the body was stolen. So if you just had that one element, okay? So maybe now a second element. If you only had the eyewitnesses claiming that they have seen him, but there's still a body in the tomb, 
That doesn't corroborate, okay? But only if you have all three things with the Christianity, with the Christian faith that we believe in, that we adhere to, would be free, would be truly true and corroborated. You and I could actually bet our lives on it. That's why we have a resurrection, um, you know, uh, Sunday. And some of you might ask, well, Gareth, it's nice now. Paul lived like thousands of years ago. And how does the resurrection now really affect my life? Because I didn't have a Damascus experience. I didn't have Jesus appear to me. I haven't even had uh, any special goosebumps moment. Well, while people were praying this morning, you were like just standing here going, oh, it's okay, that's nice. <laughs> you, you were having no physical experience. How can you trust that this is true? Paul says it's very simple. Because he has, in Acts chapter 26, he has a, an encounter, a discussion. Uh, actually, not 22, in verse 20, uh, chapter 26 of Acts. He has this discussion with, with Felix, uh, Festus, and, and Agrippa. My, my, all my, I should just look at my notes. That'll help, right? <laughs> but he has this debate with them. And he begins to tell them, listen, look at the life of Jesus. He was born here. He lived here. He did these miracles. He was crucified. And then on the third day was raised up again. And Festus is, is doubtful. He's saying, Look, Paul, listen here, my friend. All your learning, all your studying, all this Jewish stuff you've been involved with, that's messed with your head. You're going crazy. But then he turns to Agrippa, who was the king, uh, the Herodian king at the time. And he was actually alive at the time. And he turns to Agrippa and he says, but Agrippa, I mean, you could vouch for it. You know. I'm not just making up stories here. This really, really happened. So if you are having some doubts today, I'm, I'm imploring you that based on the evidence that Paul is bringing, that we can see not only in the eyewitnesses, not only in what Christ has written in the scriptures, but also historically as it has unfolded, that you and I can trust upon what Jesus has done. You and I can believe what Jesus has done, the fact that he has risen. Because hundreds, hundreds of Orthodox Jews, Jewish people, they will not change their minds. They wouldn't change their belief if they hadn't had an experience. That's one evidence that you and I could have. You know, groups of eyewitnesses couldn't have hallucinated. That's one thing that all the group said. Yeah, they were all hallucinating. It's like when you, I've never used hallucinogens, but what I'm told, okay, is that you have your own trip. Okay, we don't go on the same trip, we go on our own trip, okay? <laughs> so when we, a group of people cannot be deceived all at the same way, at the same time. So they, they verify together what they saw. And so I want you, just as a basis, as a starting point, your heart and your mind and your life is transformed when you and I accept this truth of Jesus. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, our greatest need is for a savor, not of the product of our own needs. One of the main desires of your heart is for a Lord that is not the product of your desires, of your heart. What does he mean by that? See, Paul says to, to Vesas and Agrippa, he says to them, listen, I have no reason to want to believe in this Jesus. In actual fact, every fiber of my being, before I had this encounter with him, before I encountered the risen Christ, everything in me wanted to not believe. I persecuted the church. 
And many of us want a savior based on our frame and what we think he should give us and how he's supposed to change my life. But when we encounter the risen Christ, he transforms and changes our lives. And we come to know him based on his, his track record, not our own. Because Jesus is not here just to fulfill my needs. He's here to fulfill his kingdom and his plans and purposes. And you and I get to be a part of that. I love the story of a well-known atheist who, who turned from atheism to follow Christ. And they asked him, why on earth would you do that? Why, why would you do that? And he says, the following, he says, I believe in Jesus because he fulfills none of my dreams. I believe in Jesus because he is the exact opposite of what I would have made if I had to make him in my own image. So then I asked him, so what about Buddha and, and Muhammad and the other religious forms? Why not adhere to any of them? He says, none of them would cause me to want to cry out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Friends, when we encounter the risen Christ, we cannot help but live differently. We need to experience God in that way. So God answers the questions in our minds, the arguments we might have in our minds. Maybe we could look at our, the argument or the question of our conscience, that inner sense of right and wrong. Anybody experience that sometimes? You feel a bit guilty. Put your hand in the cookie jar. I shouldn't have done that. Anybody experience that sometimes? You're a little bit guilty. Maybe some of you have come in here this morning and you've been heavy laden with your guilt. And I'm trusting as you see the risen Christ, you'll be set free from that. He says, and if Christ, this is verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If Jesus wasn't crucified to pay for our sins, but raised up again, you and I would still live in our sins. How did Paul get past his past? Paul was a persecutor of the church, a murderer. Someone that w who went out. It was his life mission to destroy anybody that would believe and profess the risen Christ. What would make him be able to live the way that he lived and even stand with confidence before others and say, listen, believe in this Christ. <sighs> the gospel produces within us such a, a, a humble realism in our who we are, in the fact that you and I cannot earn our salvation. Paul tried. He failed. He did everything that was supposed to do and yet realized that nothing in himself could redeem him. Only the gift of Christ, him on the cross, setting us free. The gospel is so powerful that we know that we are so wicked that he had to die for us. You and I realize that the, the gospel knows, makes us realize we, we've missed the mark. We've missed something of what God wants to do for, for us and what God has done for us. And so because of the resurrection, Paul could look forward and say, listen, I'm set free from my sins. I've been set free from the things that I've done. And today Jesus is saying the same thing to you. How can you and I know that our debt's been paid? How do you know if, if you were sentenced to prison that you are free to go? When you have fulfilled the requirement of judgment and they let you out of jail. That's how you know you've paid the price. You've been set free from your guilt and you've paid the price. How do we know that Christ has paid the price for all of us? Over all of 
eternity. God has stamped through the gospel, paid in full across history and across your life. Because what happened, friends? The tomb door is open. The tomb is open, friends. That's why you and I can experience God's forgiveness. That's why we have now been set free. What's powerful for us to see is that if Paul says that if Christ was not raised, we would still be dead in our sin. But what happens to you and I when we put our life and put our faith in Jesus? We are no longer in our sin. We are now in Him. God wants you and I to live as people that are not in our sin anymore, but are now in Him. And so many of us live still with the baggage, still with the, the heartache, still with the frustration, the limitation that would happen in our hearts and lives. And today I want to tell you, friend, because Jesus rose from the dead, you and I are free from our sin. Our conscience is clear. We can live in a way that sets, God sets us free. And we're able to experience that because we are in Him. Christ is risen and you are not in your sins. You are now in Him. The last argument Paul tries to speak to them about is the, this argument in our, in our heart. Which basically says that if we were just going to continue to live the way that we're going to live, like forgetting about what Christ has done for us on the, on the cross and raising from the dead. If we live in this way, we live free from this sort of baggage in a way that we experience, we would understand that God speaks to not just setting us free in our hearts, but actually has empowered us to love others, to share this with others. And so many of us as, as believers I've seen we love the fact that Jesus died on the cross for us. We love the fact that our sins have been forgiven and our consciences are clear, but we're not actually sharing it with others. Paul writes, he says, you know, with, I face these wolves, these beasts in Ephesus. Many people don't understand or know what, what he's talking about uh, when he talks about, uh, you know, he doesn't say, I think the early church probably knew. But what it shows is that he was willing to endure ridicule to endure something of the heartache that God experienced. He embraced the heartache that God had towards those who are not saved yet. And he was willing to put up with their cries and their desires to say, I want to run the opposite direction. He was willing to proclaim over and over again the risen Christ. And a, and a resurrected life for Christians today, friends, means that we are sharing this resurrection with others. I, I, I'm just overwhelmed with this reality. There is, there is such power in the resurrection. And, and I, I sometimes get so angry and frustrated with the fact that I spend, speak, uh, spend time with people and speak with people that don't want to embrace this. They still feel like, oh, well, it's just fairy tales. But based on the evidence I've just pre presented, I'm sure that's a pretty compelling e evidence. But Paul is saying, I'm willing to go to whatever lengths there may be. I'm willing to let my heart break for the things that, God's, that breaks God's heart. I'm willing to embrace all that God has got for me. But not just for me, but actually to share it with others. And I want to ask us, who are we 
bringing into God's kingdom. Because if Jesus set us free from sin and death by rising, rising from the dead, why do we keep it for ourselves? Why do we hold on to it as if it's the special gift that we've received? There is such powerful, this is a powerful reality, friends. Jesus overcame not only sin, but also death. And this ties in so beautifully with another passage in Hosea, chapter 13. It says, and Paul actually quotes this a little bit later on in, in 1 Corinthians. He says, uh, Hosea 13, 14. It says, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? Jesus came to set us free. And you and I can ask, we can live we can have that openness of heart knowing that this life is not all that there is. There is eternity that we can walk in. And we are, we are, have been, um, I'm going to put it, we have been actually been called out by God to bring others into that reality. I once heard a very um, sad story of a, of a pastor who, whose wife passed away. And, and he was driving in the car on the way to the funeral with his children in the vehicle. And he was trying to process how is he going to reconcile and help his children to reconcile the very real hardship that they are facing. Their mother has just passed away. They are about to bury her. And he says that as he was driving, they came to an intersection and a, a large semi-truck came and parked next to them. It's a double road. And the shadow of the car, of the truck, covered them. Or, or, you know, they were struck by the shadow. And he turned to his daughter and said the following. He asked her, what would have been better? That we were struck by the shadow of the truck or by the truck itself? And she said to him, Daddy, I, I, it's much better that we were struck by the shadow. And he said to all my, my girl, Jesus chose to be struck by the truck of death that mommy can only experience the shadow of death. Friends, when you and I experience the risen Christ, we no longer live under fear of death because we know the death we experience is simply a shadow. It's not permanent. It's hard it's not easy. And some of the hardships we experience, some of the challenges, whether it's in your health or finances or relationships, sometimes we feel like it's too much to bear. But can I encourage you to say this is only a shadow? Christ paid the full price for you and I. And because he's risen, we can say to death, where is your sting? Yes. Oh grave, where is your victory? And we are celebrating today the resurrection of Christ. Christ deals with this, the objections we have in our minds. He cleanses us from our guilty conscience, but he also sets us free from the fear of death. And some of you here today, I know it might, might be a cliche, but you are worried about what will happen to you if you die. And today my encouragement to you is, put your faith in Jesus, the risen Christ. Receive his forgiveness and begin to live the resurrected life that he has called you to. That he has paid for you. That he has made a way for you to access.
And for some of us, you've been following Jesus, but you have not lived a resurrected life. You've allowed some, just like the Corinthian church, like, oh, this resurrection thing, oh, you know, it's not that important. Can you and I begin to live as people who are convinced that we've encountered the risen Christ and that we would not allow anyone to see death without somebody telling them about Jesus? Easter is not just about Easter eggs and chocolates and eating too much. Roast legs of lamb and family gatherings. It's about a risen Christ. It's a remembrance of what Christ did for us. And so I want to ask the music team to come to the front and I'd love for us to, to, to pray together as we go into a time of communion. As we remember what Christ did for us. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, Lord, I want to pray for those today that I know they're living under the fear of, of death, under the condemnation of their sin. And Lord, as I share today, Lord, I pray that they would respond not to a God of their own making, but to a God who loves them enough to bring them back into His presence. But they have to do it by faith. They've got to build, turn their backs on sin and they've got to embrace the finished work of Jesus, the risen Lord and Savior, now seated at the throne of heaven. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we would so enfold and be so enthralled by you, Jesus, more and more, and that our lives would speak of our encounter with you today. Lord, I pray for us as a church, Lord, we would be a people who are ambassadors of the risen Christ, looking for opportunities to share with others the power of the resurrected Christ, the love of a God who wants to snatch people out of sin and death and bring them into the newness of life in you, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that as we go into communion, Lord, I, I pray, Lord, that we would once again be reminded of the price you paid for us and the new life you give us, Lord. This is done as a sign, a remembrance of the new covenant we now live in. God is no longer angry with us. Your wrath was completely satisfied on the cross in Jesus. Forgiveness of sins is freely available. Your body was broken that we would be united with you. And this morning, Lord Jesus, we look to you. We ask, Lord, that you'd remind us, that you'd renew us, and that you'd fill us again with your spirit and your presence in Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us for today's message. Don't forget to check out our website or visit City on a Hill International on Instagram or Facebook for our updates, celebration times, or ways you can get involved. We are also streaming our message on Facebook Live, so make sure you join us or share the post. Thanks again for checking out our podcast. We'll see you soon.